What you have to realize on any journey is it's almost always better to have help rather than do it alone. The journey to better started because I needed to go on a journey. That it, 53 years old, by outside measures was super successful, but internally I was not. And I'm hoping that through this, I can learn to be a better person and hopefully just to make my portion of the world just a little bit better. I want people to know that A, they're not alone, and B, that we all struggle with where we are in life, how we are in life. We can learn lots from each other, ways to make our lives better and make us better people by being curious and interactive with others from a wide array of background and experiences. I'm Bill Lombardi, your host. Welcome to the journey to better. Welcome to the journey to better. Uh, I'm Dr. Bill Lombardi from the University of Washington, and as our usual, we're opening with a technical challenge. Dr. Kroos's phone is cross-referencing. Um, John Michael, if there's a problem, you'll let me know. I'd like to welcome Dr. Kevin Kroos um, from Brigham and Women, uh, who's with me today, and soon Stefan Rinfrey, who's flying in urgently, will be here to start with us. So I want to just start with Kevin. Thanks for being on. And uh, number two, uh, at this point, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are, who you are, and then also why this topic sort of is interesting to you. Yeah, I appreciate the invite, Bill. Thank you. Uh, hello to our listeners. <laughs> My name's Kevin Kroos, as Bill mentioned. I'm a, a high-risk, complex CTO interventionist in Boston, Massachusetts. I work at a big teaching hospital uh, and I love training fellows, so the prospect of taking people and helping them get to the place they want to be professionally and personally is something that's a near and dear to my heart topic. So, you know, the, the topic this week is one that's, that's sort of interesting, and I, it came up, Stefan actually brought it up when we were over in Europe, which is, so one of the things you hear at almost every major meeting, right, there's a bunch of people in the fellows some old staid person like me goes to the microphone and says, when you start, you don't want to have complications. So even if you know how to do, you know, a rotoblader or you know how to do an unprotected left main, you know, if the risk is too high, you shouldn't do that case when you get started because you don't want to get a bad reputation. You don't want people coming after you. What, what is your thought when I say that? Is that something you think we should embrace or do you think that's something we ought to Rethink. Uh, rethink. <laughs> okay. but, but ironically, my near and dear mentor, who is a very prominent interventionist, I did my postdoc with, was like, my advice, advice to me is don't kill anybody in your first six months. <laughs> like, admirable. Don't right. want to do that. I, I'm definitely with that. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I mean, uh, especially for people that do chip fellowship like you and I have trained people to do, um, you're learning to do something which is inherently hard. Right. And just because it's hard doesn't mean on your second day you should be unwilling to do it. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, if you're trained to do something where there's a patient need, there's not adequate patient access, and you have the capacity to help someone live a better life, it, you know, it scares me that we potentially are coaching people to not do what they're trained to do. Why do you think we're doing that, though? If you had to sort of, we start thinking about the bigger picture of interventional cardiology, why do you think most people would say that's the approach we should take. Yeah, you know, there's there's a therapy gap in that not every center can offer what I argue is state-of-the-art technical medicine um, interventions to patients that need it. 
And so, you know, one of the neat parts is by training fellows at a high level, uh, we can hopefully get them to places where they can marry up with patients and meet their skill set. But a lot of times they're going to centers that may not have the technical capability that they're coming with. And therein lies this whole um, political thing that gets in the way of people being able to do what they're trained to do to help patients. Yeah, so, so I've always taken the approach in this, which I think, so if, even if you didn't do a high-risk PCI fellowship, if, if I go and say, hey, listen, you know, don't do X, Y, and Z because it's outside the standard at the hospital, right? So what I don't quite understand, so we have some old people who've been doing the same thing the same way for a long time in an institution that has built its narrative around what PCI looks like, right? And there's a lot of variability in what that looks like. And then we bring somebody new in and we tell them, don't do what you were trained. Do what these people tell you to do. Right. Does that make sense? Not at all. <laughs> right? So are we training the fellows badly so that the people in practice don't want to learn from them? Is that? Should we be looking more at our fellowship training and saying, gosh, you know, why are we doing that? Why do we lack so much, so much concern yeah. for that? So it, you bring up a larger point of culture <laughs> yeah. and willingness to evolve. Right. And so, you know, it, there's different phenotypes. There's old guys like me that see a new person come that's doing something differently and feel threatened by it. Or there's old guys like me that see a new person come and be like, hey, like this uh, guy or gal came from a place where they're bringing a breadth of experience. And I'm going to be an open book. and I'm going to learn from him as much as I might be able to teach him or her something. Let's see what they can bring to the table in terms of new expertise, growing our program, and helping us to evolve. And so outsiders are actually good for programs because they take a fresh approach many times, and they can help you to get to a place where your program, you know, introspective or not, may not be sort of to a level or to a place which is similar. And they may have way A, we may have way B, and hopefully way C can be an amalgamation of those things. Right. But you bring up points of, you know, willingness to say, I don't know, willingness to learn, willingness to consider uh, a different way of doing things, and really willingness to evolve. And so that a lot of what this speaks to is the culture of an institution. And I don't know about you, but when I, I talk to our fellows about their first job, I tell them the most important thing isn't your pay, it isn't where you live. All those things matter to some extent, but it's who your partners are and what the culture of the hospital is. Because if those two things are supportive, you're going to do really good for yourself and patients. You're going to feel professionally satisfied. Do you think there's an obligation, and I don't know which society or where you would go, to start changing this narrative, to start confronting the people who've been in practice for a long time, that a complication and a failure isn't bad, it's an expectation. Mm -hmm. And the expectation is to learn from it. The real question is, can they learn from it? Right? Who's the expert in yeah. the room? So do you, who do you think has the responsibility in potentially changing that culture? Yeah, so, you know, um, cultures are unfortunately local. <laughs> and then they're micro-regional macro-national, and, right. and we've got potentially um, challenges, I'll say, <laughs> at multiple of those levels. So politically correct. 
So that's why you have me here. I'm the political. Yeah, that's right. I'm right. for step five, man. <laughs> I need somebody to all you go crazy. Um, but but to your point, yeah. and to be honest, I think um, challenging some of those norms is healthy yeah. uh, and necessary, and it helps us get better, and it helps us level set. You know, what type of um, profession do we want to be, and where is the line between safety and adequacy of care? And that's something that's individual. It's individual to an institution, environment, but just because, you know, you're not comfortable doing something doesn't mean a young person who's trained to do it and can do it well shouldn't be trying. Because inherently, hard stuff has risk to patients. And we have to all understand that. Right. Well, and I think the other piece in this sort of, it's, um, you know, the, 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 my therapy term to get into is narrative. Mm-hmm. Right? So these people who built their cultures, been there a while or, you know, whatever, risk avoidance or whatever you want to call or practicing to what their skill set will allow them. Mm-hmm. So the the narrative they built for, the reason the standard of care is in their institution is they built a narrative that effectively fits their skill set yep. rather than building a narrative that actually treats all the patients. Yes. And or, or looks to grow. Correct. Yep. And maybe that's a better way is the, the growth mindset. And I think what happens, right, we bring this new person in and I tell you to, you know, step back from what you're really used to doing for six months or a year. What's going to happen to their skill set? It's going to erode. And it's going to become like the silent. To the norm. It's, yeah. Right? And so I, I, for me, this is why I get passionate about this topic is we're doing this backwards. Mm-hmm. We're taking people who are afraid, who have not grown, who have not really improved, and then trying to conform someone who is in a different silo to not the highest common denominator, but the lowest common denominator, right? This is the, we're building the bar, we're aiming for average, so we're going to end up with below average. Yeah, I mean, we should have a class and fellowship on how to fight stagnation, impact change from below. Because right. from below, you're the young person there. So, you know, guy or gal comes to your practice, you've got the least experience in terms of number, but potentially training, which is more contemporary. Right. So, how in a positive, politically savvy way you can move the needle to allow yourself to grow, grow in competency, do what you're trained to do, and maybe help to morph the practice to a place which is a little bit more contemporary to what can be done. Yeah, it's something that we don't learn how to do in fellowship. No, and it, it, as, I mean, we've, I think we talked a little bit about this, but I mean, how many people do you know out there that are in hot water with medical staff, mm-hmm. where their own partners basically are hanging them? Mm-hmm. Right? Why are we? Where? Why do we? Where did we get modeled to lack compassion for our partners and to crush them? Yeah, you know, even speaking it from an East Coast Ivy League yeah, academic I, I was going to say, <laughs> places I work, I used to share as a junior person um, a little bit of the Monday morning quarterbacking scenario. Right. And I don't I have to say, I don't know how it changed, but the culture of the places I've worked have gotten better. New generation, okay. maybe recognition of the fact that uh, hard pass have some amount of risk to them. And conversations around, you know, it, it goes back to that um, a few good men theory. You know, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall. But at some point, like, just 
there's some ugliness to this that we're all going to have to accept. Right. And so if you want your patients to get treated well for having these capacities to take care of ultra-sick patients with ultra-high-risk needs, there's going to be some bad outcomes. It's a numbers game, as you right. said. So I think conversations around what the level set expectation for complications is in modern contemporary high-risk revascularization, which is the world we live in, is something that we push the envelope. Well, we can go even into simpler stuff. I mean, let's talk about intracoronary imaging, mm -hmm. right? Less than 14% of the procedures in the United States get imaging. Yep. I mean, the data, I mean, if you look at the mortality and recent OSIS data, it's actually the same as doing the difference between lytics and PCI. Yes. And nobody does lytics anymore. Yes. So why, again, this goes back to somebody comes in, they want to do 100% imaging, but the culture is we don't. Yes. How successful do you think they are in changing the culture and which one wins? Well, it varies. And I've had fellows bemoan the fact that, like, and they'll, they call you, you know, the next day it's like, God, the struggle's here. Right. It's like there is a tech in the lab who's the person that they bring in to visually size the artery. And we'll ask her, <laughs> like, is it a 3.0 or 3.5? She's like, I don't really care. Give me a tool which actually lets me know that with a lot more clarity. What? It's like it's every week. It's like talking him off the ledge. That's a true story. Yeah, in I terms of it. his center. And they're like, "Why do you need this stupid Ivis thing? Like, just get so and so. She'll size it for us." He's like, "This is insane." Right. And this is the struggle that people live. You know, um, fellow went from ninety percent imaging, striving to do a good job, reading the data, believing that as a therapy. Um, adjunct to get better outcomes for patients to a place where it's heresy to try to do that. How, so challenging question for the politician. Oh, Stefan's here. So talk to me about the role ego plays in that. Yeah, ego of people that you're trying to change? Yeah. Hey, hey, Stefan is here. <laughs> We're in the middle. Yeah. Have a seat. Welcome, Steph. So we, we, we've been, so Stefan Renfrey. Hello, man. From all over the world, but we'll say from Emory now, yep. has just joined us, who actually was the instigator in this discussion of what should we be telling first-year fellows? So Kevin and I have already sort of laid out the groundwork of we often have fellows come out told not to mm -hmm. do high-risk stuff. Yep. We've talked about that some of the challenges of that are the silos and cultures that they go into. Some of that is the faculty coaching them to not do it. And then we talked about sort of the variability of standard of care approach. We we're just talking a little bit about how imaging has even been a struggle. And so what I wanted to talk a little bit is what the role of mentorship and ego, and, I, and I'll put it around, if all our mentors tell us to not go do what we're supposed to do, that's hard to go do it. And... Is it the ego of the people that we're joining that are preventing us? Or is there just a pervasiveness of risk aversion that's preventing people from doing it? So I'll ask you, Stefan, what do you think the role of our mentorship of fellows coming out and the role of ego between the mentor and the physicians that have been in practice for a while affecting the tolerance of new people to do what they were trained to do? Yeah, it's a it's an excellent question, and I've been been thinking about this for, for some time. Um, it's it, it it relates to the culture of the institution, but not necessarily the institution. It might be just uh, 
depending on the mentor uh, who's been more mostly most influential in your in your career and then therefore uh, where you end up working and what is the philosophy of that uh, it's a more prominent individual there and what he perceives uh, so so there's clearly risk of uh, there is clearly uh, um, uh, a risk averseness, especially um, uh, for uh, you know triggered uh, by uh, experience or maybe perception of you know when you start your career you you cannot have a sequence of uh, X and Y complication because people will think of this of you and that and this. And that triggers, uh, of course, some risk avert, uh, avertness from the younger operators who will try to avoid any situation where they may be exposed to, to a, a certain risk or will, or will try to buddy up with someone else to sort of dilute the risk, right? So I, I've seen it in, uh, in several uh, you know, institution, and I think it's a, it's important to have a, an open discussion about this because I am, I wonder if this is, uh, if this is actually uh, good on the long term uh, for the individual, for the young operator. Yeah. Maybe on the short term it is good, right? Because you actually are protected from doing things that might lead to a wrong perception. However, um, being flying on your own and not having that peer pressure might make you uh, fly faster and getting over your issues, uh, you know, on a, a more independent way. Okay. It's, it's a balance between rugged individualism, carving a hard path forward and doing what you believe is right, and culture regression to the mean if that means lower than where you aspire to be. Yeah. And that's the tension. So yep. but so let's let's talk about consistency of message. Right? If we want people to do stuff, we were, we were talking a little bit about this in Europe. If everybody goes up and says, I do this, I do this, I do this, then everybody in the room's narrative is fulfilled because one of them is going to say what they think. So everybody feels good. If everybody goes up and says this is an absolute. This is the way we should do it. Then there's no room for the narrative other than cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. to go forward. So in some ways, especially as we train high-risk fellows, do we need to do a better job of saying, you need to go out and do what you were trained to do. You need to take on the risk. You need to do these indicated cases. You have the skill set to do it, and you should be able to do it. So first question. Should we tell them that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Second question. What skill sets do we need to give them so that they don't get fired when something bad happens when they go do that in their new job? I can take this. I think it's very important for them to have, and I think wherever they start a new job, I think it's very important that 
that it is perceived that this person has been highly recommended because usually the process right we've we've had some discussion with some people we've had to give sort of a a reference of you know and, and then in the end they, they it's it's very rare that our chip fellows will end up working somewhere where we haven't talked to anybody there so we've usually praised their 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 ability, their skill set, and what they can do. And I think it's very important to also let them know that we will be there and we will be able to, to mentor them through the process afterward and, and be realistic on their, uh, with their expectation. You know, I think you cannot, you cannot only have the benefit of a CHIP program. You know, the big thing is that, okay, if I have now a CHIP program, is going to attract more PCI in my group because there's the only way we can grow is by doing more complex PCI because otherwise we're not going to grow, right? So that's that's the key point. So then people are going and say, okay, let's get this guy, this guy. They don't, they, but they don't realize that high-risk PCI will mean that they're going to see mortality. They're going to see issues. They're going to see other things. And that's the real thing that needs to be discussed. The, the people that are hiring our chip fellows in particular rarely know what they're hiring and what that person is oh, to do because they're not trained in that. Do you want the most amazing story of that ever? And this is also, because I don't want this just to be about the chip fellows, because this is about just yeah. good first-year yeah. venture yeah, yeah, yeah. But So one of our fellows goes to get a job at an academic place. The phone call I get with his about-to-be boss is when will they be ready to do STEMI call on their own and put an impella in on their own? And so I was, so I'm like, well, he's doing that on his own right now because they take independent call. And then it was like, do you understand what you hired? <laughs> and he didn't. Mm -hmm. And it changed the percent. What I thought was interesting is Erica brought up, what he's saying is our fellows, when they graduate, can't do that. Yeah. How in the hell are we graduating fellows that can't do that? Right? So I'll take it from... What Stefan said, we're going to bring a new person in. They maybe have better training than the people who are already in practice. They're going to do cases differently because they trained differently. What soft skills do they need <laughs> to build an environment to succeed? Well, it starts with mentorship, right? So to go to Steph's point of when... Um, someone calls me to ask about any of our fellows, you know, is he or she a good person? Do they have good technical skills? Should we hire them? About a third of the way in that conversation, I turn it into a reverse interview. This person is trained to do X, Y, Z. What environment are you going to provide where he or she can succeed? For our CHIP fellows, I make sure they're not going to be at the satellite hospital doing diagnostics two days a week and one day at the home shop where they can charge to do what we've trained them to do. Right. And then I start to talk to the person who's the hiring physician, you know, what kind of resources are necessary for this person to do what they're trained to do. And not all those jobs look favorable for the fellow to go there and I'll tell the fellow, like, you know, so-and-so call me, I know you're excited about living in this great city and the $9 million paycheck, but when I talk to them, it seems like they don't understand what it, what, what infrastructure is needed right. for you to be successful. And that infrastructure includes culture. Right. And so I start with, like, is does it seem like a place that's willing to have someone like you and support you successful? And if it seems that way, 
those soft skills are something you start to coach them about. And, and one of the things is how you build consensus of what that program wants to become. Yeah. And conversations around um, where we are now, and there's your fellow's way, which is potentially more contemporary, and the program's way, and how to get those things to move forward in a more harmonious than less harmonious way. And something Steph, Steph alluded to, but there is um, a benefit to air cover. And so that's kind of the word I used in talking to our fellows. If you get the air cover, an old guy with gray hair like me, then you start to do cases together and something's going to go wrong at some point. But then there is a bit of a team approach to we believed, we wanted to do this case, we felt it was adequate, and we as a group are willing to take responsibility for the fact that bad stuff happens in what we do. Right. The problem is, in my perspective, mm -hmm. most of the places our fellows, again, I'm going to get away from the high-risk piece I felt for yeah. a second, but most of the places are going, that old person isn't there to give them air cover. They're yeah. there to shoot them in the head <laughs> Yeah. because we don't hold people accountable to that. So we all have fellowship programs. So I asked my fellows this last year, and I'm sort of curious. So we actually do leadership coaching and soft skill development from day one. I have a reading list that they have to go through. They have to give me feedback. They take notes. They have to give me feedback on what they learned. Mm -hmm. We talk about what they learned. We talk about cultures. We talk about who to get on the bus, how to get on the bus. Some of the books are actually about that. Yep. How much of your fellowship training is actually leadership training? So we'll say 100% technical, 0% leadership soft skill. What would be your percentage you think of technical versus leadership soft skill? Uh, admittedly, it's not enough leadership soft skill. Okay. And it's not formal. Right. So we talk about it. You know, we spend 18 hours a day with these guys and gals sometimes. Yep. So there's a lot of time to discuss that. Yep. But um, a little bit of lead by example, right? Yep. And they're they're probably lucky because they're training in places where um, the culture is hopefully positive to what they need to learn to do, what we're doing professionally for patients. Okay. And so um, I think aspirationally, it sounds like you're doing it right, and it should be more of a, a formal curriculum of how to grow, how to influence change, how to make an institution better by your presence, even if you're the lowest woman or man in the totem pole. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for me, I was going to, so Stefan, where, where would you guys say you're at Emory? 100% technical or not, or a little bit? I think nothing is <clears throat> not a, nothing is former, uh, formal in terms of soft skill development. It's more like an individual basis. It's more like who uh, among... Uh, all the people who train uh, them, they identify to be more influential in terms of mentoring or mentorship and stuff, and it will vary. Okay. Uh, so, so I guess I guess it's, you know, it's there's there's still a, there's still a lot of uh, this uh, perception that you know, as a chief of of, of a cat lab, um, you have to sort of uh, watch quality or be be sort of the police of your cat lab and, and just and there's there's a lot of this still around and you can you and I think in the US it makes it even more complicated because sometimes you join a group and then the chief of the cat lab is trying to become your group. And then you 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 as you as you mentioned, yeah. this individual will be 
you know, not necessarily uh, structuring in the career of someone who's actually exposing himself or herself into doing something, you know, higher risk, but very indicated. So it yeah. could be structural, could be coronary. So <clears throat> this is this is clearly a problem, and that's the reason why when you when our fellows choose a job, we clearly have to have a, uh, a discussion with whoever is hiring and what 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 is their expectation, and also afterward uh, help manage some of the issues that may arise along the way because if we train them, we trust them, we so we we can actually be helpful afterward to sort of get them through this. We, we do talk a lot about um, how to impact change in a non-threatening yeah. way, which doesn't overtly stir the hornet's nest in your first four to six months. Yeah. That can be done in CAF conference by simple probing open question. Yep. If you believe in something like intravascular imaging, mm -hmm. you uh, show it at CAF conference. You don't just talk about what it is. You can start to teach your partners that don't know how to use it what it is, how to read images, and then even things like there's a high-risk case coming up, put it in calf comments before you do it. Yep. And when someone says that shouldn't be done, start to challenge your mom. Like if that was a 90% LAD with the same indication, we wouldn't even talk about it. That's a skill set issue. It's not an indication issue. Yep. You can ask those things and not necessarily be a jerk about it, but it's ways to gently move the needle. So, so I agree with what you guys are saying, but I want to talk, I guess... I always like to start talking about, let's start talking about how we're going to change this environment, okay? So both of my fellows will tell you 50% of last year was psychology and leadership coaching. And I'm trying to get it more formalized. We're trying to do it more. It's a hard ask. Yeah. But for me, and this is, I think, the important, because we did it with our first years too, which is if you're trying to figure out the culture of the job after you started interviewing, you've already made a mistake. Yeah. You should be in the interview process, know how to evaluate the culture. And that's why I think being more proactive about teaching these skills and to sort them out is really important. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll put out what we do. So there's the, the books that they're required to read is called Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, which is about vulnerability. Because that's you have to teach people and you have to model vulnerability to get people to realize they're in a blue pill, blue pill world, not a red pill world. Uh, the next book is a book called Black Box Thinking, which is a book about the airline industry as the ultimate high performer of learning from failure and a culture that embraces failure at a seven sigma rate. And medicine is actually the worst. Actually, Chris Buller, that's his talk tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have to change the culture to embrace failure because failure is how you get back. Avoiding failure is not how you get back. Yeah, it's what it, just, it just makes me laugh because when stuff starts to hit the fan, the joke among many of our friends and certainly our cath lab is we'll hashtag florist or everything. <laughs> Start hitting the button because no matter what happens, I'm stressed, it's bad, but we're going to learn from it. And I'm going to document where it goes right or wrong. Correct. But that's, you know, you'll see some disaster dead patient. There's three angiogram runs. You don't know what happened in the middle of it. Well, what do you, what do you Hiding think? Hiding it as opposed to. What do you think tomorrow, what this meeting's yeah, exactly. about, right? It's, it's to start changing right. that culture. Mm -hmm. um, the third one I've had people read is a book called Think Again by Adam Grant, which is about cognitive. It, it's actually, Peak is another one I've, I've got to read out, read it. But it's about cognitive reframing. How do you 
rethink, relearn, and how do you mediate with people to help them start to change their thought process, right? Soft scale. Um, another book we have them read is called Nine Minutes on Monday. It's nine habits of leadership over management. And so it's trying to build leadership skills because that's what they're going to need to do. So those are sort of four easy reads that culturally for me embody what I'm trying to get out. And then the last one is a book called Good to Great, which is by Jim Collins. It's a, it's a business book, but it's about how good companies become great companies. And a lot of that focuses on how do you build a culture that is great? And so learning some of these very difficult tasks as a leader that you have to learn to do. And then we talk about who do we want to put on our bus, right? So the first people, if you're going to go out, if you're a first-year fellow or a high-risk PCI fellow or a structural fellow, and you want to do what, you know, Adam Greenbaum and Aisha do, you want to do what Jamie McCabe does, the first people you got to get on the bus is your staff. That means the techs and the nurses. So what you have to do is train, or you have to interact with them differently than they've ever been interacted with, which is you have to treat them like people. Mm-hmm. And you have to teach them and train them like fellows. And what you have to do is empower them that I don't need to manage the ACT in a case. If I forget to tell you a heparin dose and the ACT is 310, and you know I have a 150 catheter in this person's body, you're going to give heparin whether I say anything or not, and I'm fine with that. I really don't care. I, I love saying to my nurses, I trust you use your judgment. They're like, what? Right. It makes them uncomfortable because they're so not, but really it, it empowers them to be part of the team. And that piece goes back to is if you're the only one doing that on a regular basis, they're going to like you. And if they like you, they protect you. Yeah. So the second one that I always talk about is actually the surgeons. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that I am not here to compete with you. I'm not going to take a single case from you. I am here to, if you have something go wrong, I am here to be your biggest helper. Yeah, and because, if I my, go because wrong, my competitor is medical therapy. Correct. <laughs> That's and, not surgery. Right. <laughs> and I think, because, and I, I said this earlier, and sort of got some head shakes, so I'll, I'll ask you this. I actually, and then I think the next group is the, the administrators and the general cardiologists. I think the people last on the list to be supportive of you are your partners or the interventional colleagues because they're the ones most likely to throw you under the bus in a lot of ways. That this old person that you're threatening or this famous person that you're threatening or variety, you know, place whatever you want, your comment to that sort of algorithm of the bus, mm-hmm. what do you think? Uh, not every bus is as easy to drive, which goes back to your point of if you're on the bus and it's moving and it's a crappy bus, you made the wrong choice and get on it. Right. And so vet your job well, determine who the allies are, make sure to be supportive right. and, and, and sort of help you move forward, both the program and possible what you need to do. Sure. But you're going to find your, like, uh, it's always, sometimes when you look over the fence, it looks a little different than when you're inside of it. Yeah. So we all get in places where, man, this isn't what I expected. And that's really where those soft skills and ways to impact change become important. Yeah. And so finding the people um, to get on the bus first are ones that you like, work well with, or aligned in terms of their ethos. They don't necessarily even have to be doing the same stuff. Yeah. They can just help you negotiate what can sometimes be a viper pits of places to stay out of in terms of getting in trouble. Sure. So let me ask you this one. So fellows courses, right? We do 
None of that soft skills training I've talked about have I seen at a fellows course. We're actually trying to do a little bit of it here today. So, but let me ask you this. So, I we have a, everybody has a fellows course, right? So, I'm going to bring you in, and I'm going to every fellows course is I'm going to teach you how to do a bifurcation. I'm going to teach you how to do OCT. I'm going to teach you how to read an iris. I'm going to teach you how to put a bell in. I'm going to teach you how to do an unprotected left main. I might teach you something about CTS, right? That's sort of standard fodder of every fellows course. How does the fellow learn that? What, first of all, why do they need to go to that course to learn it? And the second is, if they do learn it there, how do they make the attending let them do it? I, I mean, do you have a comment on it? I, I just always chuckle at every program we've ever run. It's the conversation about how to get a job, how to thrive in practice, how to be relevant. It gets the greatest reviews, regardless of who gives it. It's not the bifurcation like I did a TAP versus a DK Crush presentation. So your point's really well taken. Because in looking at feedback on sessions we've run, yeah. even for attendings, a lot of the soft skill stuff that I worry a little bit about from this is going to be interesting gets high accolades from an engagement perspective from the attendees. Right. There is a yearning for it because it's never delivered, I think, in an impactful way. Yeah, so do, do we need to, as we think about, like you guys are going to run a, a chip course in the fall, if I read that correctly. Unfortunately, yeah. I'm going to miss it because I've got other stuff going on. I apologize. But... Should this be something, you know, we've talked about, well, we want to make our interviews all the same date. Is this something as as the group, A, should we start maybe coalescing reading lists or some concepts, or should we have these discussions about soft skills equally to some of the hard skills that we're talking about? The second is, should we start talking to CRF and ACC and Sky and ABIM, ACGME, about adding some requirements or some opportunities for this kind of, because you didn't get any leadership training coming up. I didn't sure as I'll get any leadership training. We're all trying to figure it out on our own. Yeah. Wouldn't it, but if you think back, wouldn't you have loved to learn a lot of the stuff you know now when you started? Yeah, yeah. Right? Because, I mean, you deal with this too, right? You're in a program with, with a lot of good operators. Mm -hmm. But if operator A is saying different things than operator B, than operator C, what does the fellow take away? It's, it's, it's difficult. Um, and, you know, I, it's, there's no right or wrong. It's, it's a question. It's a philosophical approach. And, and in the end, I think everyone wants to protect their fellow from, from being their own enemy. However, there's no single recipe for success, right? So people, there's more, there, there will always be more conservative people and more progressive people. And the conservative people will be, you know, we've been doing this like this. Um, you know, my mentor used to tell me this and I, I, I will repeat what their mentor have said their own, their own life. And they still, you know, I, I watched a case um, at, at uh, Sky and the operator was still using uh, 300 wires, 300 wires. And, and, and his explanation was, you know, I, I trained with Don Bame and that was, that was great at the time and I still, I, still, I still use it because there's so many advantages. And I said, like, it's, it's actually, uh, it's, there's zero advantages. There's zero advantages. It, it doesn't torque as well. Yeah. It takes more radiation, it's harder to use. So there's zero so, advantage to but, it. But this, this is a fallen floor. <laughs> but for this individual, if he's not been able to move from 
from over for yeah. from 300 centimeter wire to short wires, how can you move someone so influential like this All right. to be more progressive in terms of you know tolerance to to risk and everything? All right, I, I'm so Kevin may have to shut me down here because you're my you're my I want to make sure I stay with my impeccable speech, impeccable words. But I, I want to challenge what you said. There is actually oftentimes right. Our unwillingness to tell people they're wrong. Like that person should not do a live case. That person in 2021 should not be allowed to use a 300 wire. That is wrong. Yeah. It's bad training. It's bad mentorship. It's bad. It's wrong. It's wrong. We shouldn't all go, well, ha, 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 blah. It's wrong. You're doing PCI and you don't do image guidance. It's wrong. It's wrong. I mean, that the, the debate you had at MLCTL. No, no. I, I, I just want to take, this is my takeaway. Yeah. Is when you do a debate, all you do is get everybody in the room who's already convinced they're right, the narrative that makes them feel like they're right. If I don't give half of the room the opportunity to feel they're right, they're going to have to either change, have cognitive dissonance, or be very uncomfortable. And in the grand scheme of things, that's actually what we need to do. We tend to want to be popular, and we want to be loved, because. but really what we're supposed to be doing is teaching a better way. And every time we kowtow to politics, dumbing it down, money, whatever, and you lose a consistency of message, you lose educational opportunity, in my opinion. Take that one. Got a comment. You're right. And, and I mean... Everybody, Kevin Gross <laughs> said, I was right now. <laughs> It's kind of funny because we all talk about our, uh, our independent struggles, right? Yeah. I break your case about being right in a way which is a little gentler. Sure. And you break mine about being in a way which is a little bit more challenging. Yep. And hopefully we'll meet in the middle and both be effective. Yep. Because yep. I sometimes look for harmony and I'm too gentle. And you sometimes are a little bit direct. Too direct. A little bit direct. I'm getting better. You are. Not as bad as I was 10 years ago. I was with you two weeks ago. I was <laughs> texting you on progress. I, I know. I appreciate it. But you're right. So, so, you know, we all have a different approach to this. And so I tend to like to preserve harmony, sometimes to the extent of speaking my mind. And you sometimes have such visceral passion that you speak your mind and create disharmony, which can be counterproductive. Right. We're uh, working on that. Uh, but, Go. But being right is the most important thing. And I think um, there's a sort of like, you know, you don't want to be a pacifist and watch bad stuff happen around you and feel like it's a missed opportunity. Right. So the challenge for being able to articulate what needs to happen and missed opportunities or something that I'm looking for with all this stuff. Okay. And so impacting change is a matter of having the backbone to stand up and say it, being uncomfortable doing it, and sometimes challenging them more. And that's what we need to think to do. And how to teach our fellows to do that in a way where they're not perceived to be a jerk in their first three months is what I struggle with in the coaching piece. All right. I want to – you you get to respond, and then I have something to say. Well, I, you know, Rome hasn't been built in three days. <laughs> you, we, we're, we're super enthusiastic. We see our fellows coming out 
we 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 know the gaps and sort of training mindset and everything to change but it's difficult to do it over overnight it's it's a long process and i and i share your your view like i've been myself into sometimes conflicting in you know interactions that were not that much productive uh although i thought it was right mm -hmm. and i still think it was right but it was not productive versus right now with you know more gray hair and and, and wait, uh, I guess <laughs> we, we get <laughs> we're maturing. We're maturing, and the thing is that you, you know, first of all, you, you you get a different perspective from others, right? You you have experience, and experience comes with you know a lot of things, but nothing beats time. Like people will say, you know, you're big. I, I, Actually, I, I'm going to disagree with you on that. Yeah, one. yeah, but, that, but that, I, I'm, bad, I'm with bad, you. That, bad, so that's bad. over in the world. Bad experience. If you're 20 years, uh, doesn't 20 make years, you good. You're a politician. You've been there 20 years. You're a politician. Everybody will be saying this. This guy has been a representative. If it, if it has been only a, you know, a, you know, not even like a very high politician there for 20, 20 years will be valued. I'm just saying, I'm not saying that the, that time is the only thing. Experiences, I would rather, you know, be bailed out by someone who's coming out of the fellowship who knows all the tips and tricks uh, uh, to get me out of a case than the guy who's been doing the same thing for 20 years and doesn't know much uh, about anything, right? Yeah, so, so, and this is where I'll challenge you about the experience piece, because we say that, at the, like, people are on podiums talk about stuff because they're famous from something they did 30 years ago. That's no relevance now. Yeah. Right? And or they've not evolved or they haven't changed. The same thing is true of a lot of these people, the senior leadership in cap labs and the way practices are built. Unfortunately, there's a real lack of self-reflection and self-insight into their limitations and the limitations they're placing on others. All right? So when we were in Europe, there was a talk about the hybrid algorithm. And I was talking last night with Mike Wyman about it, and Mike will probably bring this up on Monday, which is people missed why the needle moved dramatically when the algorithm worked. And it worked for about five years. And now we're basically making very little headway in the space on improvement, outcome, safety, and I get into a bunch of litany of things, okay? But the reason it worked wasn't that, oh, here's, you know, if this anatomy do that, if this anatomy do that, right? Great. The, the objective was success. That's it. The objective was efficiency and, and success. success, okay? But that isn't actually, when I started this process with Chad Kugler and then got Craig involved and the two, three of us trying to work this out, that wasn't the goal. The goal was to proceduralize CTO. Yeah. But you have to understand what that means, okay? What it meant was, one, everybody said the same thing every time. When I started, remember, I didn't start on the podium. I started in the audience. And I went and watched all these famous people from around the globe. Ten people, you know, here's the case, ten people, ten different approaches. Ten different wires, integrated. There wasn't even retrograde when I started. 
but 10 different approaches. Nobody, there was zero consistency. Okay? When hybrid came out, 8 out of 10 people on the podium, panel, case came up, live case operators, they were identical. I would do this, then I would do this, then I would do this. Mm -hmm. Okay? Go to any of the cases, meetings now, that's not what you hear. No, I would do integrate first every time. I would do parallel wire. I would use a recross catheter. I would do retrograde, but only here. I would, it's, it's a bunch of eyes. Right? That, that doesn't, nobody in the audience learns from I. That just means everybody's narrative in the audience gets supported because there's no right and there's no wrong. Okay? So consistency of message from the faculty is why there was adoption. The second thing that is missed is nobody at that meeting was good at all of the options. So I've said this before, and people miss this. I, I did the first in man. I did all the development work, with, and then Craig got on board. But I basically proctored most of the early people in doing Stingray. Mm -hmm. And when I got to hybrid, I sucked at it. Mike Wyman was way better. Craig was, they had taken it places I couldn't even imagine. And Mike will tell you is one of the things he learned there is retrograde was important and he hadn't done enough to be really facile with it. And Aaron needed to go learn Stingray. But every one of us, the five, at least the five operators that were there, Tony, Aaron, Craig, Mike, and I, every one of us looked at what was going on and instead of saying, well, my way works really well, I'm really good, said, I can't do that as well as them. So I'm going to go fail. I'm going to go purposefully practice. I'm going to go learn to do what they're doing. And then when we got back together, we're interchangeable. And to this day, I can do cases with Craig and Mike and Tony and Aaron, and they are always the most comfortable because we're interchangeable. If I go work with anybody else, it's not going to be interchangeable because they're going to have their narrative. Well, I'm better at this, or I'm better at that, or I'm afraid of this. And I think... I have, I have a question. Well, yeah, well, I, I, I'm talking too much, and we're getting the last 10 minutes, so I, I'd like your questions. But I just want everybody out there, for the fellows going out to get their first jobs, we need to have a consistent message of, you need to do what you were trained, mm -hmm. we're here to support you, but you need to build soft skills. You may ask your question because I got off topic, and I apologize for everybody out there listening. You know, I think I think you're 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 raising really good points, but I think we've the the whole world of CTOPCI has has moved, uh, you know, as as evolved since the publication of the hybrid algorithm to a point where like new techniques and and other approaches have have became a bit more, you know, what, what better new, understood. What new technique? Well, they were not new, but. People became more comfortable with IVIS guided puncture. That was not really in in the algorithm. Uh, some technology came out. I'm, I'm not saying that this is and the there's risk, more, there's, the more risk parallel, not, there's more parallel wire and integrated wiring being done now yes. than when we started. Yes. Despite not a shred of evidence that actually it's better. But and I, I, I hear you, there's been like, but there's, there's no randomized trial that has compared, you know, 
the, the, the only thing is uh, of the original hybrid to, let's say, any anything else. The only thing that I can say is that, and I wrote on it, on it the Japanese try to came, come with their, I, their sort of algorithm, and it was... Asia-Pacific, it wasn't... Japan. No, no, the Japan, they had... They Japan, their own they, they, and they, yeah, they, and Japan, they came after with their own, which was like, if you feel retrograde, why don't you go retrograde again? And we'll we'll do retrograde and everything yeah. was like so 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 anyway so the whole thing at the end we said like Hobbit paper one I remember this. and then and then and then that 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 Eugene Wu sort of global was sort of to bring but if you read it 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 look it reads pretty much like the algorithm of course but it's not much much difference right it, it is because an algorithm is only as good as your skill set and to get good in it. it Listen, nobody does Stingray in this world. So having it in the algorithm is a waste of time. The problem is, it's still better than Parallel Wire. And the only reason I know that is, I've done a gajillion Parallel Wire cases. So what I find interesting, and this comes back even for the newbies, what we have is people who don't know how to do something, telling you not to do what you know how to do, because they don't know how to do it. I mean, this came up, I was at Swiss ETL, and I got critiqued by this guy, which doesn't, none of it matters, other than he was critiquing a bunch of things because he doesn't do them. There is not a thing in CTOs I haven't done because I want to be really good at everything, so I understand it. I also want to realize is if it's gotten better, I'll change. Yeah, that's but just the hasn't. mindset thing, Bill. Like, you yeah. know, let's say someone we don't know shows up in a week and has a new approach or something. Yeah, yeah. There's, I'm not going to do that because I don't know how to do it. Look, I'll, let's see what he or she has to say. Because I'm looking for improvement. I'm looking for yeah. progress. I have no idea what he's going to bring to the table, but I'm going to be open-minded about it. But we politically tend to move back uh, to the mean. To protect what we know and our ego and yeah. trying to solidify that we're great, I'm yeah. great. And other people that bring a new approach are threatening to the institution. And that's I work the, at Harvard Medical School. I live this for good fellow. You still do. Impact change. I mean, flexible, self-appointed look, 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 look at the care variability across the three institutions under the same <laughs> medical school, right? Mm -hmm. you know, I, don't, I appreciate that. So I just, and I think this is, for everybody out there listening, as we get near the end, I want you to self-reflect on your role in this problem. Everybody you work with should be able to say, these are the three things I want to get better at. Right. And if you don't have that list, you're a failure to learn. Well, and I'll also go back to is, are you a good mentor? Are you supporting the new person? Or are you the person going after them? Right? So I can tell you, in my system, we had two, we started saying, done. Two different hospitals. So one had two fatal events. They were tearful, a mess. Immediately, Bill, you know, can you review this case and tell me what you think and tell me? And that's no, I'm like, are you okay? How are you emotionally as a person? I'm a rack about. We're not going to talk about it. You're a good and worthy person. These things happen. It is an expectation. What we do in our lab is really hard. We want to see you get better. I want you to go home right now and just 
let it soak in. It's okay. Tomorrow, when you have reflected, then we can sit down and discuss calmly, mm -hmm. without criminality, mm -hmm. things we might have done differently to change the outcome. Okay? That person is still on faculty. They're technically better. They've done great. Another institution went right to M&M, got a gun to the head, two years later effectively never self-reflected, never learned anything, and effectively left, then left the job. Now, all it was was two different environments. Mm -hmm. So what I would tell you is, for us and those listening, let's be more open, let's have more courage to stand up and discuss environments and cultures and holding those that are preventing that culture change a bit more accountable to evolve. Is that a reason? Is that a politically correct way to say it, Kevin? Am I getting in the zone that's less offensive? Uh, challenge the mindset of the place and the people around you in a way that we can grow together. I think yeah. It's admirable. And okay. It's something that if we could teach our kids to do that, fellow kids, yep. they're going to be in a much better place professionally. Okay. And they're going to be able to be happy in their job, do what they're trained to do, and help get patients better, which is why we hope they all come. Okay. Final comments or question? We also have to better understand what are their benchmarks. You know, we, we are, what we're doing is, is based on a need, because we truly believe in whatever we're doing that there's a need. We're helping the patients at the expense of some complication and stuff like that, then there are, and the benchmarks that are out there from NCDR and everything are just all wrong. And then if you try to be to be the best in the country, well, you'll be cleaning your denominator. You'll be not doing some stuff and everything. And this has to be better discussed. This is, what are you doing? What are the cases you're doing? And what is what are we expecting out of this type of mess of a patient, how, how, what is operator dependent, what is patient dependent. And at some point it's so, it's, it becomes obvious and it's very, it's, it's because it's so easy for a young operator to feel, you know, very bad about everything. But what, what you're doing is, 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 is difficult and you're, and overall you'll be helping so many patients, but the benchmark have to be different. And, you know, with the optimum registry, with protect for coming out, protect for registry, yeah. we'll know better about what are we expecting at, in terms yeah, of complication. I, I, live, I live that calibration after a couple of bad outcomes. Someone said, hey, are we being too aggressive? Mm -hmm. Point out, you're the person who's often asked me to do these things. But I said, I've actually started to articulate in the worst of what we do, there's probably one in five to one in four where some bad thing happened. And I'll say that to the friends. This is a really hard case. It's challenging. You know, we do a lot of these now. And probably one in four of the worst of the spectrum of CTOs, mm -hmm. you know, surgeon turned out, something bad thing happened. Yeah. And I define that for them. And if it comes up in M&M, like, yeah, we have a pretty good safety profile, but this is the cost of doing business. But we have conversations around it. But your point's great. Because if you can have some sense of what the expectation is, and pre-articulate it, it's not a surprise to someone when something bad happens. Yeah. I, I will end on my side of this, which is all of the public reporting and all of the hospital metrics, you know what that's all for? 
reimbursement. Yeah, it's for insurance companies. That's it. So for me, we should stop paying to screw ourselves. Got you. It's not about patient improvement. It's not about doctor improvement. Do you know how many programs the NCDR has shut down? Zero. Do you know how many how much data that the NCR has that it's improved outcomes? Probably not a lot. Zero. Do you, and we, we have data. If I lived in Massachusetts, the first thing I do when I have a heart attack is drive to Vermont. Because we have data that the public reporting in New York and Massachusetts harms patients. So I think we, again, this takes the courage. They finally got rid of it, though. I know. <laughs> but this is where we have to have more courage to step up against the bullies. And that includes our own colleagues who are being bullied into conforming to a world that actually is not patient-centric. It's center and insurance company-centric. Kevin, any final words or questions? No, I just, I, you know, I, I like the fact that um, my response to the fellows and in your has been, if you struggle, I'm happy to come and give Cath Conference a grand round. And I can be the guy in the room with a little bit more experience who can push the agenda for you. And they should lean on all of us that want to help to be able to do that. Because we can challenge their culture easier than they can. I'm willing to do it. You're willing to do it. And you certainly will. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just trying to learn to do it more correctly. <laughs> so, guys, thank you very much for being on the journey to better. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Stefan, thanks for bringing this topic up. I thought it was a really interesting thing. I'm glad we can make all the logistics work. Uh, everybody out there, I hope, hope this session was helpful for you. It was helpful for me. It worked on my thought process about where we want to go with this. So thank you much and have a great evening. Thank you for listening to Journey to Better and good luck. <laughs>